Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films and the people that made them and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight, we're celebrating the 1982 release of what is arguably the best Star Trek film of all time, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And joining us for a second visit to Saturday Night at the Movies is writer, director, and a favorite guest of ours, Mr. Nicholas Meyer. Hi, Nick. How do you do? I'm doing pretty well. The industry, though, isn't doing very well at all. In fact, uh, I think we need the enterprise to intervene. Uh, you need the, it isn't just the industry, it's the whole country. We need a grown-up. We need a grown-up, exactly. Uh, it's now early September. Do you see any chance that the strike will end this year? Uh, despite the fact that I've dabbled in science fiction, I am not a very uh, qualified or able prognosticator. In fact, most science fiction seems to get things wrong. They, they did, uh, in Star Trek, predict the flip-top telephone, but I'm not sure what else uh, they've got right. My feeling about the strike, um, again, is that there doesn't seem to be any grown-up in the room, particularly on the so-called management side, which doesn't appear to be unified. Put simply, the studios would like to settle, but the streamers would not. And so we're not even dealing with a unified entity on the other side of the table. Um, I think what's likely to happen, maybe what has to happen, is that more uh, unions have to go on strike. Just more, 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 until the whole thing breaks down and we start over. It does that's, seem that's just like, my opinion. I don't no, know. No, it does seem like it, uh, it several times in the, the dialogue, the word existential threat uh, has been mentioned to writers, creators, actors, etc. And it, it seems to me that as the industry becomes more streaming conscious with less eyeballs on cable, less eyeballs on broadcast, fewer people going to movie theaters, it does seem like the business is transforming before our eyes. Well, I'll only say this. Uh, there's a lot of movies coming out that I want to see. I've just been, you know, reading reviews. I guess it was of the Venice Film Festival. And I thought, oh, I want to see that. I want to see that. And I, and I won't stream them. I'll watch them in a movie theater with popcorn and a bunch of strangers because that's how I like to experience theatrical art, whether it's ballet, opera, or a movie. Um, so I'm not convinced that movies are dead yet. We obviously took a terrible hit because of the pandemic and the strike is a double whammy. But I think, you know, when live theater was uh, initially supplanted by movies, people said well that's the end of live theater but it but it hasn't proved to be so people like theatrical experiences we like surrendering ourselves to an anonymous but collective 
and also highly intimate experience. You go to a movie, somebody uh, said that laughter is a shared experience. That's why it's so pathetic when you watch sitcoms where they supply a laugh track to try to make believe that you're not alone sitting and watching the fucking show. I would rather have that be real and that I'm sitting there with a bunch of people I've never met before. I'm not, not even meeting them now. We're in the dark, chowing down on popcorn or, or you know, one of those candy things um, and having an experience that is at once unique, individual, highly personal, but also collective. It's a group experience. And I happen to think that people are better when they come together than when we all fragment and, you know, put on our earbuds. I just think that's, that doesn't augur well for humanity. Um, so I'm not convinced, number one, that movies are are dead. Uh, but I do think this is a, I, I think it's really all about class warfare, if I'm, if I'm free associating. I think, you know, people at billionaires retreats saying that the writers are being unreasonable uh, while their yachts are being completed is slightly hilarious. It, it, it's almost like somebody should have put a muzzle on those guys for talking, et cetera. I'm reminded a few years ago when I saw the animated feature WALL-E and it, it portrayed human beings bloated, sitting in chairs, never getting out of their chairs and not existing in a normal fashion in any way we could relate to. And I agree with you a thousand percent that we need to get out of our homes, get away from our screens, go back to the movies, enjoy the collective experience and see things like we originally saw them. I know we talked a little bit about this, about our first movie experiences. I mean, I I just opened up like a, a, a seed sprouting watching my first movies on the big screen. I haven't lost that fascination, although uh, some things have changed for the worse in terms of some movies just being the same movie over and over again. Um, well, what's interesting is that the, the two big movies uh, of this year are total originals, Barbie yes. and Oppenheimer. Yes, and two uh, more different movies there could never be. And I have to say that I went to see Barbie and I thought it was very enjoyable. It was like a, a giant candy cane. And Oppenheimer, although it was very long, there was a lot of meat and potatoes on that uh on that plate so it was very enjoyable now we're going to talk about star trek now uh you kind of whether you like it or not have become somewhat of a dean of of the world of star trek and i think it's because you put in some great great writing i have to say that a lot of the star trek movies have really sucked and i think it, the writing hasn't been nearly as good as it could be the first Star Trek movie, which was directed by one of my all-time favorite directors, Robert Wise, who was a wonderful craftsman, just really, it was terrible. The story was just as dull as dull can be, aside from the fact that all of their suits looked like they were sprayed on. Um, the first thing I want to talk to you about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, is the music. 
Uh, James Horner in 1982 was relatively unknown. Uh, I know I had read somewhere that you didn't have the money for a Jerry Goldsmith or an Elmer Bernstein, and you were forced to look elsewhere. Is that true? Yes, we didn't have the money for anything. Um, the first movie, and by the way, I just want to go on the record as saying, I am not here to knock Star Trek, the motion picture. Um, somebody had to go boldly where nobody had gone before. Um, and it would be disingenuous of me uh, were, were I not to acknowledge that I learned a lot from watching that movie. Uh, as you may know, I knew nothing about Star Trek. I came to it as a complete innocent. Um, so watching that movie, I learned a lot about what I what I didn't want. I had somehow locked into the idea that this was a movie about the Navy uh, and it was about the Navy in outer space. And so everything that I was designing, including, by the way, the music, was designed to lean into that proposition. Um, the uniforms, the sets, as I redressed them, and by the way, we couldn't afford the sets, so we used hand-me-down sets. And my solution was always to make them smaller, to make them grungier, and to put more blinking lights and signage everywhere, as if you were on a U-boat or a destroyer, something like that, as opposed to what I often found in Star Trek movies and TV shows. They look like they were walking down the corridor of a Holiday Inn. And I thought that, uh, you know, this is not, this doesn't look fun to me from a dramatic or visual standpoint, it looked kind of boring. So yes, Robert Wise, whom I knew, and admired a lot, uh, had to go first. And I think there were a lot of reasons why things got so fucked up. I'm not sure they are attributable to him. But I learned from watching and managed perhaps to avoid some of the mistakes that um, people think were made in the first in the first movie by the time i got to james horner as you point out we couldn't afford jerry goals we couldn't afford anybody um i uh had listened to a lot of uh, cassette tapes auditions and i i found many of them at the time sort of depressingly similar i was sort of listening to generic movie music um but uh, uh joel sill who was i think head of the music department at paramount showed me this james james horner stuff or played me some of it and i thought okay this is as as wagner said about bizet when he heard carmen uh here's somebody who's got ideas in his head so um i met with james horner and we got along extremely well he was a very droll fellow with a dry sense of humor. And I should say that where music and movies are concerned, I have certain advantages 
and I have certain disadvantages. My and they may be the same thing. My advantage is that I come from a musical family. Everybody in my family, starting with my grandfather, who was in the first violin section of the Boston Symphony for 25 years, my mother, who was a concert pianist, my father, who was an excellent pianist, my sister teaches the violin, another sister is a pianist, I'm a sort of a parlor uh, a pianist. So I have a, a wide-ranging knowledge of what I will call music. Other people might call it classical music. I call it music. So I was able to carry on perhaps a more specifically intelligent conversation. I think lots of times when directors are talking to composers, they don't have a common language. And that's when directors use temp tracks to try to uh, illustrate what, what it is. So the good news about my knowledge was that I was able to cite very specific examples. And I said, listen, this is a movie about the Navy, about the ocean. I want you to re-listen to Claude Debussy, La Mer, and think nautical. The bad news about my knowledge is that it sometimes uh, interferes with my listening to the music as something other than music, as let's say what it really should be, which is a kind of an emotional sound effect. So I can sometimes get so intrigued by the piece of music that I'm listening to that I miss the fact that it's not appropriate to the scene. Hmm. And, the, and the producer who let's say is is musically an ignoramus and i can say gee this is really beautiful and he goes yeah it's beautiful but it isn't scary you know and he's more down to earth in that sort of nuts and bolts way and in that situation my musical knowledge is working against me so i could i could say what i wanted i could recognize you know whether i was being understood or not but as regards individual cues, I could sometimes, you should pardon the expression, miss the boat. It's interesting. Um, I had a personal experience with your score for this movie. I was working for Columbia Pictures at the, in the summer of 83, actually the spring. And I was taking a 63-day tour cross-country for a 3D science fiction movie that Ivan Reitman produced called Space, Man, a Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, which was a 3D movie, kind of lost in the wake of the second Star Wars or the third Star Wars movie that year. But I had to load a, um, a space truck driven by Peter Strauss into a science fiction convention in Manhattan, my first trip to New York. And um, I, I was playing the soundtrack for Star Trek II and it got so much momentum in me, it almost physically allowed me to get that truck into that convention. I know this is kind of confusing to hear, but that soundtrack was in my head so much. And I'm particularly talking about the cut when Kirk clicks on his uh, communicator and uh, asks uh, Spock, are you ready? So they're obviously going to be beamed back up and everybody's surprised that they they can do that. They thought they'd be trapped in um, inside the planet. And that music there, Horner's music there is so 
so exciting and uh, just propelling and energetic. And it's and it goes through the whole idea of loading the space torpedoes, which we've never seen, by the way. I think you're the first Star Trek film to show the Navy loading its main batteries, which well, I, thought- I, I was stealing from Michael Curtej. I was stealing from the Seahawk. I was stealing from <laughs> Captain Blood. And I I was talking to a friend of mine and I I said, I, I know this shot is a total anachronism. It's ridiculous. But I just was in love with that moment. It's my favorite shot in the movie. And he, my friend said, what do you mean? Ridiculous. The electrics were out, everything. They had to do it by hand. So he was meeting me more than halfway. And I thought, OK, that's the ideal collaboration between the, the artist and the and the audience where they're pitching in to to make to complete the picture to make it happen the thing that i would um put out there for us to contemplate is the notion going back to you describing driving into new york and being able to sort of navigate because you were being accompanied by this very exciting music is that sound always dominates picture and specifically music always tells you how to feel so if you show a scene of a little child bounding through a field of sunflowers and daisies as happy as can be and were you to play chopin's funeral march underneath that little girl you know that she is going to die of an incurable disease, that she is doomed. It's never the other way around. The picture never dominates the sound. So it comes really as no surprise that Jamie Horner, who whom I miss to this day, what a stupid loss, <laughs> managed to waft you into New York in a, in a van. Uh, you drive around any countryside, any cityscape, and put on something on the radio, and what you're listening to is going to color what you see. It just is. Oh, sure, absolutely. It's always interesting for me to think of some movies that are so musically dependent just i mean they're just I, like the other day i was listening actually i was watching the magnificent seven the original john sturgis uh, with yul brenner and the elmer bernstein score is so much a part of that movie I, it's hard for me to picture them actually making the movie and not having that music playing while they're making the movie i'm sure with your movies and we talked a little bit about it when we talked about time after time but with star trek 2 uh, obviously, you're working with actors and action sequences. There's no music. You don't play music on the set, do you? You mean a violin and the wings? <laughs> like they used they used to do that with silent movies. They would have they would have uh, an orchestra playing while the love scenes were going on to get the the actors in the mood. Why well, I remember Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor doing that and singing in the rain. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, singing in the rain was was replicating something that was really done. Sure, of course. Now you mentioned influences in your head, Seahawk, uh, uh, all the Michael Curtez. By the way, I love the fact that you said Michael Curtez. Up until last week, for the last forty years, I've always called him Michael Curtiz, 
until I cracked open the the auto the, actually the biography of Michael Cortez, which by um, Alan Rohde. By Alan Rohde, and in the first sentence he says it's Michael Cortez. <laughs> it's it's very interesting. Alan, who is by way of being a a friend of mine, have you ever met him? No, but I'm going to invite him to come on my podcast. He's a mile high. What does that mean? I'm being literal. Oh, he's a very tall man. He's a very tall man. Oh, okay. I'm a very short man. You know, I need a ladder to be eye to eye with him. I just, read, I just read his little book on um, Blood on the Moon. Oh, yes. And that was quite fascinating because it's a movie I've never seen. Now, of course, I want to see it. But I want to see it, too. Funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's, he's a real scholar. Uh, no, Alan no, Rohde. I, I, he's the real deal. No, I'm I am looking forward to talking to him. Um, in the in the discussions about the wrath of Khan, they compare the um, the duel between Khan spaceship and uh, the Enterprise with classic submarine dramas, World War II. The enemy below runs. The down. enemy below is the one. There that's you go. The, that's the one. Uh, and the, talking about the subject of influences, one of the curious things about influences is a lot of the time those influences are unconsciously absorbed there are influences that you're aware of there are influences that sound cool to say even if they're not true somebody can say who were your biggest you know director influences and you know it it might be looney tunes but it sounds cooler to say Robert Bresson or Ingmar Bergman, issues of self-presentation. But but I think more mysterious are the influences that you didn't even know were happening. And I think it was 35 years after I made The Wrath of Khan that I rewatched The Enemy Below. And I thought, holy shit. This is where I got this. I had stayed with me all this time and I and I hadn't remembered. And by the way, the great trivia question for movie buffs, who directed The Enemy Below? Dick Powell. Yeah, you're the only person I've ever mentioned who could answer that question correctly. <laughs> Dick, Dick Powell directed. Oh, Dick Powell had a good run there for a few years. I mean, he yes. followed this with a very good aviation war picture called The Hunters. Uh, with Robert Mitchum and Robert Wagner about Korean uh, F-86 pilots has some of the most spectacular, not digital, of course, there was no digital back in 58, but real life Air Force footage, just a uh, real cool movie, definitely. And then he had done that previous film, Split Second, about a group of people. I don't know if you ever saw that one. That's the one where they're trapped near, they're going to, uh, they're in a Nevada shack being held prisoner by a criminal near the first one of the first a-bomb tests so they got to get out of there before the a-bomb goes off it's called split second do you know what happened to dick powell dick powell was one of well the story goes that when they were making the conqueror uh, the conqueror with all those actors that they were filming near the uh yeah the radioactive dust from the a-bombs yeah st george utah and so, and they all died of radiation poisoning radiation, horrifying Terrible, terrible. Um, so the enemy below. Well, the enemy below, that makes complete sense. Um, now, 
the Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan is it not approximately it is a sequel to an episode of the original Star Trek called Space Seed, correct, which, which introduced the character of Khan. When you were, uh, can you walk me through a little bit of how you came to get on the team? How did this start? I was brought onto this team or urged onto it by a childhood friend of mine named Karen Moore, who was at the time an executive at Paramount. And she was up at my place on a Sunday, as I recall, and we were barbecuing hamburgers. And she suggested that I meet with Harv Bennett, who had been assigned to make the second Star Trek movie. And I said, is that the one with the guy with pointy ears? <laughs> uh, so, so back in the 60s, you didn't watch the original series? Not at all. I mean, I just thought it looked dopey and I kept going. Uh, I didn't watch it. I think not watching it, it's safe to say that I missed everything that was important or meaningful about it. I didn't understand the international, interracial cast. I didn't understand the whole conceit of, you know, human beings of different backgrounds coming together to accomplish good things or any of these sort of idealistic and um, and progressive notions that the, the show represented. I just saw, saw the cheesy sets and the people running around in Dr. Denton outfits. And I thought, no, this is not for me. You were way too sophisticated. I was a high school student. Uh, Thursday nights, my my chore was to take the cans out. The minute I took the cans out, I would go back, turn on Channel 4, and there was Star Trek. And I think that in many ways, this period, mid-60s, was kind of the, the calm before the storm of science fiction taking over. I mean, today, everything is science fiction. It's almost like you can't get away with it. Anybody it's replaced Westerns. Replaced Westerns, comedies, war pictures, dramas. I mean, pretty much every genre is science fiction now. And back then, it was a bit of a desert. We were about to get the first Planet of the Apes. And then Thursday nights, the idea of intelligent science fiction at least the way I perceived it at the time, where the characters seemed to talk with with a, a great deal of knowledge, particularly Spock, was just crazy good because I'd been exposed, like a lot of us at that time, to a lot of the 1950s science fiction shockers, which were all exploitation films, many produced by American International, with a few A-list titles like Forbidden Planet, The Day the Earth Stood Still. But this was- And The Day the Earth Caught Fire. British film, sure, of course. Of course. That, that film is, oh, shit, scary. When you will look at that film oh, now, boy, is oh. that a smart film. Whoa. I think I saw that, yeah, I think I saw that the same week I saw The Day of the Triffids, another British science fiction movie I found very scary. So you, uh, you're barbecuing burgers, and she says you got to meet should go. Her. You should meet Harv Bennett. Uh and when she got through telling me what a snob I was, because I was laughing about this Star Trek thing, I thought, okay, you know, this is a person I respect. She's extremely intelligent and she knows me. So I went down and met Harv Bennett. 
and we got along extremely well. Um, I, I thought he was a lovely man. Was he and, aware of some of your films? Had he seen time after time? Was he uh, knowledgeable about your filmography? I don't remember. Some of these things are, I, I suppose I could say things and nobody's alive to contradict me, but, uh, uh, you know, I differ from George Washington who could not tell a lie. I can, <laughs> I can, I can, but I won't. So, um, so I, I can't remember what he knew about me. All that I do remember is that we liked each other. And so he showed me the Star Trek movie, which I had not seen. And I sort of said, uh-huh. And then he showed me some of the episodes, which I had not seen. And I, I said, let me, you know, think about this a little bit because something tickled in the back of my brain that this was sort of like something that I knew I did like. And it took me a while because it always takes me a while to figure out things that what this kind of reminded me of was a series of novels that I read when I was about 13, I think, called The Adventures of Captain Horatio Hornblower by a, a writer named C.S. Forrester. It wasn't his real name, but he called himself C.S. Forrester. And he also wrote The African Queen, which was a favorite movie of mine. And Horatio Hornblower was a captain in the Royal Navy during the Napoleonic Wars. And he had lots of adventures and he had a girl in every port and all of this when you're 13 sounded really cool. And I plowed through these books and there was a movie of it with Gregory Peck as Captain Horatio Hornblower and Virginia Mayo, which I love this movie. Um, and uh, by the way, I think Gene Roddenberry liked this movie a lot too. We'll get to that. Um, so I said, gee, this whole thing sounds like Captain Hornblower in outer space. Sure. Ships in outer space, Navy. I thought, oh, I know how to do that. And then I thought, well, that could be really fun to make a space opera. So I was starting to jones for that. And so Harv said, great. Draft number five is coming in and uh, I'll send it to you. I said, great. And sort of we agreed on everything. And then draft five never showed up. And it's like I woke up a month later. I said, whatever happened to that space movie? And I called up Harv and I said, uh, que pasa? Uh, and he said, well, mm, I, I can't show it to you. It's, it's not very good. He had actually more colorful language at his disposal, um, which I won't repeat here. Um, but I, so I said, well, what about draft four or draft three? And he always called me kid. And he said, kid, you don't understand all those drafts are merely a second attempt, a, a, an attempt to get a second Star Trek movie. They are not related. And I said, oh, okay, well, so why don't you just send them all to me so I can read them? And he said, well, okay. 
Um, and in those days, you didn't hit send. A, a van drove up. <laughs> and there and there were maybe, you know, like 30 scripts because oh. it wasn't just different drafts. It was the rewrites of each of these drafts. And I'm a very slow reader and I'm a slow thinker. But I read by plowed through them. And I said to Harv and his producing partner, Robert Salen, I said, can you guys come up to my place? Because I think I have an idea. And so they came up to my place and I pulled out a legal pad and I said, here's my idea. Let's make a laundry list right now of everything we like in these five scripts. Could be a major plot, could be a subplot, could be a sequence, could be a scene, could be a character could be a line of dialogue. I don't care what it is. Let's just make that list. And then I will try to cobble together a new screenplay that incorporates as many of these things as that we like. And they didn't look happy. <laughs> and I thought this was a really good idea. And I said, what's, what's wrong with my idea? And they said, well, according to ILM, the special effects house, who's contracted to do the effects for this movie, if they don't have a script in 12 days, they cannot guarantee delivery of the shots in time for the June opening. And I said, what, what, what June opening? And they said, well, the picture is opening on June something. So I don't remember what it was. And I said, really? I'd only directed one movie. I said, you, you, you booked the the movie into theaters and there's there's no movie and they said well yeah this is how it's always done and i said jeez uh and i said okay well what about this uh, maybe i can you know put this thing together in 12 days then they still didn't look happy i said well, what now what is wrong what's the problem and the problem as they said is you know we couldn't even make your deal in 12 days and that's when i for better or worse did what i did and i said listen forget my deal forget the credit forget the money we're not talking about the directing deal we're just talking about the writing part because if we don't do this now today you're not going to have a movie yes or no and you know, they tried to conceal their astonishment. When I told my agent what I had done, my agent, who was since all this time a dear friend, he said, I realized that the alternative career I had been thinking for myself, which was becoming a priest, was out of the question because I wanted to kill you. Uh, so, okay, so th there's kind of a couple of parts to this thing. So I'm trying to race through it. I, I sat down. I, d I don't really have a memory of this thing. I knew nothing about Star Trek. I just knew about the laundry list that we made, Khan. Uh, by, by the way, quickly, Nick, 
these five drafts or whatever they were, these multiple drafts, did, were they were they all related to the the space seed episode or is no, that... no 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 okay. no 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 okay. got it um no they they were unrelated to each other got they it. were unrelated to each other and so Khan was in one story and that was Harv Bennett's idea because he watched all seventy nine episodes I never did and he said well what about bringing this guy in so that that one episode had been written around him then there was the genesis project then there was kirk meets his son then there was spock dies um and but they were but they were all in different scripts lieutenant savick was in a different script so it was like fiddling with a rubik's cube and i i won't like i don't remember anything about the 12 days except my back was out by the time it was over um because i just didn't get up and I fiddled with it and fiddled with it and fiddled with it. And at the end of it, I had a script that everybody approved, which is not to say that there were not revisions. There were, but it became like the constitution. You could amend it, but it was what it was. Back, and, back in 82, uh, was your process to write script pages in longhand or were you using a typewriter? It was probably a bit of both because I, I was fond of legal pads and I still am. So I probably sketched notes and arrows and I, I don't remember. I, I, you're making me lie and I, I, or engage in mythopoesis and I can't do that okay. or I, I don't want to do that. I don't remember what the hell I did. I know that I was, I was typing a lot. I know that 90% of the dialogue was all mine. Harv Bennett wrote five or six lines, and I can tell you which ones they were. You know, would you like a tranquilizer? Captain, this is the garden spot of CD Alpha. You know, those, <laughs> I just remember which ones. Sure. And um, I took that simulator scene that was on page 30 of draft three, and I moved it up to page one and started with that. And uh, then Harv and I were, and Bob Salen, we were uh, in a screening room looking at special effects test shots. And by this time, someone had leaked the idea that Spock was going to die in this thing. So we were getting, I was getting death threats. You know, if Spock dies, you die, that kind of helpful uh, encouragement. And I was sitting behind Harv while we were watching these test things and having a morning cup of coffee. And I said, you know, we should put Spock in the simulator scene at the beginning and fucking kill him at the beginning. <laughs> and Harv whirled around and he said, that is genius. <laughs> and I said, what I say? So the, so whole, the whole the whole idea of the Kobayashi Maru test was that that was you. Uh, no, the Kobayashi Maru is in somebody's screenplay. I don't know oh, anything about Kobe. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Um, but the idea, you know, to take it from, you know, page 30 of this episode, whatever it was, and move it to the front and then put Spock in the beginning of it. And as you're writing this thing, the ideas and themes are becoming clear. And so you're writing into them as you go. That part I did remember. I said, oh, I'm writing about friendship old age, death, and implacable hatred. And sort of, and one of the things when we were talking in my 
house that day when I was saying all the things I didn't understand about Star Trek. I said, how come nobody ever reads a book? And I yanked down a book that was just the nearest book, which was A Tale of Two Cities. It's, it's the book that everybody knows the first and last lines of. And so that went into the hopper. Um, and then when it came time to pick the books that Khan had taken from the Enterprise Library on the Botany Bay, and I thought, okay, he took Paradise Lost, he took King Lear, <laughs> he took Moby Dick. And then that got fed into the hopper. Um, so basically that's how it happened. That's that's a great story. I mean, it's poetry now, but the way you describe it all coming together sounds rather chaotic. Um, I, th I think movies are lots of times happy accidents, a series of happy accidents. Sure. The, the stars align, or as, as I said once in a documentary, I said movies are like souffles. They either rise or they don't. Um, and I sure don't know why this movie uh, turned into what it did. I was busy. Let's uh, let's talk about some people here. I'm curious, since you were dealing with them on a daily basis, uh, he's become somewhat of an icon. We've lost some of his hair here because uh, we can only show above the eyebrows. But tell me about William Shatner. I mean, you know, uh, I'm curious what the working relationship was like with him. Well, I knew him socially slightly before we started. Um, Bill Shatner is an enormous talent, in my opinion. Uh, and it wasn't just my opinion. He was at Stratford when Chris Plummer was at Stratford. He understudied Chris in Henry V. And one night when Chris didn't go on, Bill went on as Henry V. And he was a, and Chris said, I knew he was going to be a star. He was a sensation. I think what happened was circumstances of a personal nature, which I don't choose to go into, um, found Bill, like many actors, taking jobs that he could get. He needed to earn a living. I once said to Ricardo Montalban, you know, why did you do Fantasy Island? And he said, my kid needed braces. <laughs> so um, I don't know that that's the only reason that that's what he, but that's, an, you know, you, you go where the work is. And, and it's one of the reasons why I did Star Trek. It was, it was a, it was a job. Yeah, and I, I got excited about it. I got into it. Um, but Bill started to do, the Star Trek stuff. And then he did TJ Hooker and maybe other television series. And in my opinion, in television, certainly in that period, if nobody falls down, you print it. And I think it's a way that you can get into some bad habits, bad acting habits. Most actors, I think, a lot of times in the movies and TV are not used to being directed at all the directors are sort of technicians and particularly today they they know all kinds of technological gimmicks and how to shoot things and cgi and god knows what but if it's actually about shaping a performance 
the way you would do with a stage actor, that's very rare. And what I discovered with Bill, uh, and I enjoyed working with him every time, is that the more you made him do it, the better he got. And the reason he got better, in my opinion, was he got bored with the repetition. And when he became bored, he stopped striking attitudes and stopped sort of posing or, you know, saying, I'm, I'm Captain Kirk. And he, he just, the camera catches behavior. And the more we would do things, the better he got and the less affected and mannered and so forth. And that was also true on Star Trek VI. The, uh, the, the Wrath of Khan movie, as you pointed out earlier, is about aging. And yes. the fact is that Captain Kirk is no longer a spring chicken. He's also reintroduced to the son he's never really had any contact with and his ex-wife. Um, there's a lot of moments in The Wrath of Khan where he's more contemplative. And I thought that was a very, very effective. And obviously that was you working closely with him. Well, I was, you know, trained on Aristotle's poetics. And there comes a moment in the life of the hero, as Aristotle describes it, people think they were, that these were rules that he was laying down, but they weren't, they were lecture notes. This is what I've observed when I go to the play, when I see the play, is there is a moment in the play, which is called Peripatia. And this is the moment of the big reversal for the hero. It's the moment where the hero learns that everything he knew or thought he knew was wrong. Oedipus begins by thinking that man is the measure of all things. I can defy my fate. It was predicted that I was going to murder my father and marry my mother. I didn't do any of those things. I ran away and blah, 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 blah. I, you know. And then he learns that he hasn't escaped any of this. And he's done all the things that he was predicted to do. That is the moment. What is he going to do? When his mother learns what happened, she kills herself. She cannot live with the truth. Oedipus puts out his eyes so that he may see better and chooses to go on living sadder but wiser. He understands more. In fact, it turns out, P.S., that he was right after all. Man is the measure of all things, but not because he can defy his fate, but because he can endure it. And that's what we all have to do. So there is a moment in Star Trek II where Kirk says, I know nothing. And that's the moment. That's the moment for me when he begins to grow, start over. You know, um, and the that's... Tale, the Tale of Two Cities book turned out to be very prophetic for you to find on your shelf because it sounds like it gave you just a a wonderful ending it did 
there you go. There you go. Um, let me uh, let me put up someone else here real quickly just to continue our discussion. Um, Who's that? That is Leonard Nimoy. It was a joke. Okay. <laughs> um, who, who, by the way, I worked for briefly. Uh, he went on tour in the, um, I guess it was the 80s. He did a one-man show called uh, Vincent. It's about Vincent van Gogh's brother. Yeah, Theo. Theo. And I remember just being totally excited to be on the road for a week with Leonard Nimoy. And we would sit down at dinner, I mean, with the whole crew, you know, there was like six of us. And the minute I would start to ask him a question about anything related to movies or Star Trek, he would turn to me and say, Steve, we are working on a play. We shall discuss play business only. <laughs> he, was, he was a thorough professional and he was very, very disciplined and, and correct in his in working yes didn't need any direction either interesting contrast to shatner constantly and they were friends they were they were good friends they you started know, off as rivals and i think they figured out that it would probably be better if they found a, a sort of a modus vivendi well it's funny because i think jj abrams picks up on that in the first star trek movie he did where they are indeed rivals. And I thought J.J. did a really wonderful job on the first one. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not, I've not been a fan of everything since. But uh, I think the most startling thing about the first J.J. Abrams Star Trek was casting the actor to play uh, Spock, who was so, so, looked so much like Spock, it was frightening. Um, now, let me, let me bring up somebody else here. Now, the story goes that Ricardo Montalban was committed to fantasy island and that literally had to like did he like have to do his scenes completely separate from the crew how did that work no 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 he can't uh what he missed were the rehearsals uh -huh. i like i like to rehearse uh i don't want to over rehearse because the you know but i but i think it's it really is time well spent for actors and directors to, to sit around and read the script out loud and find out, you know, what dialogue you need, what dialogue you don't. The more words you cut out before you start rolling, the less you're going to have to figure out in the editing room. The actors may, in this case, most of them know each other quite well and have done this a million times, but sometimes they've never met before. So it's a chance for us all. And actors are are, are very interested in who the hell the director was. And there was this young squirt who had directed one movie before. And actors want to know, as my friend Ed Zwick once said to me, they have one question about the director. Is he crazy? <laughs> Am I going to live? Do I have to pull the boat over the mountain? Um, and so... That's why I like to rehearse, because I think that once you get sort of a general picture of who you're working with and what's expected of you and how the script is basically going to sort of come together, then you're freer on the set when the meter's ticking to kind of be creative and fool around because you're within the framework of what you've all understood. And I didn't get to do that 
with Ricardo because he was shooting uh, Fantasy Island. I had lunch with him. Very, very courteous. Courty, courtly is how I would describe him. And I gave him a copy of Moby Dick and I said, read this. It's all here. And then he showed up and he showed up in full drag the way you see it in the picture. That, incidentally, is his real chest. Well, let's dispense with that little question. Um, and that's how we went to work. And he confided in me that he needed direction, that he didn't know what he was. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing up there is what he said. And I said, okay. Um, and uh, because he was playing his opening scene in the cargo bay the first time we ran through it, and he was sort of screaming it at the top of his lungs. And I said, you know, Laurence Olivier once said that an actor should never show an audience his top. Because once they've seen your top, they know you got no place else to go. Oh, interesting. He said, and he said, oh, oh, you're going to direct me. That's great. I need directing. I don't know what I'm doing. So, and I, you know, and the other thing I said was, you know, like a crazy person doesn't have to shout because you just never know what they're going to do. <laughs> and I, and he leapt back. And so, yeah, it was like, it was the only time in my life I ever felt like I was driving a Maserati. No, that's, that's very cool. I, I, I can hear his voice. Uh, there she is there she is it's just the the way his just 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 he's just so embodied that character and you know when, when you've got a great villain like that you you gotta you you gotta work that villain and you did so beautifully let me put up one more character i definitely want to uh in, talk a little bit about and then we'll be finished um dee, 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 dee. there she is there she is kirstie alley who, uh, as I found quite beguiling, uh, a very interesting presence. Uh, in hearing some of Leonard Nimoy's commentary a few years back, he does talk about there was supposed to be a romance with Kirk's son, but that kind of got left into the cutting room. Or did you ever shoot any of that? No, we never shot it. That I recall, didn't shoot it. Got it. I think we may have sort of slightly flirted with it at some point, but... I think in the Genesis cave, there's a little stuff, but not a lot. Not, and I, I don't recall writing it for sure. Don't I didn't write it. Was she an immediate choice or were there others that were considered for Lieutenant Savick? As far as I recollect, she was my immediate choice. I had to fight for her because she had just showed up in town from Wichita or someplace um but i just it was a gut decision on my part and a good one a good one i thought that she's been the best of the savics and uh certainly um a lot of fun to watch and 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 just interesting her interplay with her and spock i thought was very very cool um nick as always this has been great i mean uh, the movie continues to play and play and will always play um why do you think just i know you want to cast cast any disparaging comments on anybody but why do you think it's been so difficult to get a good star trek movie 
aside from the fact that you're not writing them? Oh, you stole my my answer. You <laughs> stole my answer. Um, I can't really speak to it. Uh, I I I find it ironic, to say the least, that I see myself as a sort of guardian of some kind of Star Trek universe for somebody who you know came in as a an apostate and uh, whatever you want to call it it was just not my area of expertise um i work from a feeling of <coughs> excuse me as much authenticity as i can muster about what people are going through my star treks mentally were always happening on planet earth and deal with earthbound issues when they wanted me to direct star trek 3 i said what's that about and they said oh spock comes back to life and i said resurrection i don't know how to do resurrection so i you know i i bowed out of it um, or the search for God. And I go, you know, how does that end? I, I don't know how to do that. So I didn't, I didn't do those. Um, I like to look at movies about people trying to figure out shit. And I, I like eye candy up to a point, but candy isn't good for you. And I try to ground things in things that are real. When I saw the first uh, Star Trek movie with the young cast, um, I saw this car race in Iowa that stops at the end of a huge cliff. Now, I spent four years in Iowa at the University of Iowa, and there is no such cliff as that. <laughs> and, and I said, well, that bounced me out of the movie. Um, I said, no, that's didn't didn't feel like, and it can't be about checking the boxes and i think what a lot of the imitations or sequels or whatever they are called is it, it's about checking the boxes how can we be con how can we you know do something like that um and never mind about what the characters are going through, what individual people are dealing with. And that's all that I ever really cared about. No, oh, that's great because it, it it's all about characters and reality. I love that. I love, I think that um, even though it's a different franchise, the early Star Wars movies, I think the better ones were really about those three characters Luke and they were Spider funny too they were cheeky they were insouciant you know out of my yeah. way princess uh, <laughs> i loved all that stuff and then oh, it got it, and then it got serious got very serious yeah it got too serious and repetitive and unfortunately uh but tom uh, stoppard said that the first thing he does when he starts writing anything is looking for the jokes and <laughs> i made me very happy because i had exactly the same instincts well, you certainly brought a lot of your humor to um, your next Star Wars adventure, A Voyage Home. Star Trek. Star Trek, A Voyage Home. 
which I think is filled with some great comedy, particularly some of the stuff you told me that you actually borrowed a little bit from time after time, especially when these on, they're on the bus with the the punker and the radio. Right. Yeah, all Love true. That. Well, uh, we we have been listening to, as always, a fascinating conversation with Nicholas Meyer, a wonderful writer, director, who. Um, if if this was baseball, he would be batting cleanup, definitely. And uh, I'm Steve Rubin, your host. Our producer's Ben Shrewsbury. Thank you so much, Nick, for going down memory lane with us. It was a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me back. You're quite welcome. <laughs>